guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can show your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, or by becoming a premium member of Words for Granted on Himalaya. If you don't already know, Himalaya is a new and awesome app where you can stream your favorite podcasts and support your favorite podcasters all on the same platform. Himalaya also has a chat room feature within the app where you can talk to other fans of the podcast and directly to me. You can also make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. These are all great ways of supporting the show, and I'd like to give a shout-out to John, Daniel, and Frank for their recent contributions. Today's episode is a conversation with Steve Kaufman, polyglot, founder of the Link language learning platform, and educational YouTuber. That's Link spelled L-I-N-G-Q. Over the course of our conversation, Steve and I talk about a handful of things, including the relationship between language learning and technology, language learning myths, language learning tips, and toward the end of our conversation, we go off on the relationship among language, culture, and history. I've provided links to Link and Steve's YouTube channel in the show notes, and yeah, that's about it. Let's get on to this interview. I hope you enjoy it. All right, guys, I'm here with Steve Kaufman. Steve, thank you so much for being here. Delighted to be here. Wonderful. Uh, so let's get things started by you, know, you, you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Okay, well, I, uh, for most of my uh, professional career, I was in the lumber business, uh, which took me to various places. I lived in Japan. Uh, but briefly, prior to that, I was in the Canadian Diplomatic Service, which is where I learned uh, Mandarin Chinese. Uh, but mostly in the lumber business, but the last uh, 12 years or so, I've become very interested in language learning. Uh, uh, together with my son, Mark, we started up uh, a language learning system platform uh, called Link, L-I-N-G-Q.com. And I have used that to learn, you know, almost a dozen languages uh, over the last 12 years. Uh, and that's since the age of 60, because I'm going to be uh, 74 years old next month. So those are my interests. Amazing. So you actually answered one of the questions I was going to ask next, which is yeah. um, what initially sparked your interest in speaking many languages and how long has that been an interest of yours? Well, you know, as uh, during my professional career, of course, my first assignment as a Canadian trade commissioner was to go to Hong Kong and learn Mandarin. And then I moved to Japan and I worked uh, for four years at the embassy there. So I learned Japanese. And then I joined a Canadian lumber exporting company and we did business in Europe uh, as well as Japan. So I, I was always kind of interested in learning languages and I had that opportunity to learn Mandarin at the government's expense and then to live in Japan. But uh, the, the more recent spurt, like I learned more languages uh, in the last 12 years than I learned in the previous uh, 60 years of my life. Uh, and that has to do with getting involved with the link and, and realizing just how much easier it has become to learn languages because of the internet, because of MP3 technology, because of all the resources that are out there uh, now that I didn't have access to 50 years ago. So it's become kind of an obsession. <laughs> Call it that. Right. I mean, I suppose in the past, there was the option of learning from books 
learning from a teacher or just learning through immersion. I mean, those, those seem to be the three ways that one yeah. would have learned a language before the digital age, you know? Yeah, I, I don't think there is such a thing as learning from immersion. Uh, you know, even if, like I was in Japan, I was immersed, surrounded by Japanese people, but I still spent most of my time with books and cassette tapes uh, in order to get my language up so that I could take advantage of being immersed in the language. Uh, if you just rely on snippets of conversation, you might pick up for the few phrases you can, you know, produce, you're not going to learn very well. So inevitably, you're dealing with books and, and uh, in other words, written material, audio material, and then an opportunity to use what you have, um, what you have learned. The dif difference is that 50 years ago when I was learning Mandarin Chinese, they had open reel tape recorders that didn't move. This is before the ghetto blaster, like that's a long time ago. Then we got to the cassette tape stage and we didn't have, uh, you know, uh, digital text with access to, uh, you know, dictionaries. Basically, you had to scour bookstores or libraries to find texts that had glossaries simply because looking things up in a dictionary is so unproductive and, and we so quickly forget whatever we look, uh, look up, you know. So, so those are the things that have, have really changed. Sure. So um, in your learning experience, what is the relationship sort of between learning through audio means and then actually learning through reading and mm -hmm. writing the language? Okay, well, the, 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 the listening and the reading are very much connected, at least in the way I learn. Uh, I like to listen to what I am reading. I like to read what I have listened to. Um, and, and, you know, the, the immersion part of it, like I was in Hong Kong, which is not a Mandarin-speaking environment. But I was able to create a Mandarin environment. First of all, I had my teachers, but also I just found as much audio and text material as possible. And uh, basically, the listening helps you more in terms of preparing to speak. You have to know what the, the, you know, how the language sounds, and you don't hear it at first. It's only after lots and lots of listening that you start to hear you know, differences and, and how the sounds are actually produced in the language. But the reading is, is more useful in terms of acquiring vocabulary. So you kind of need to do both. Right. I mean, in, in, in the little experience I have learning uh, other languages, um, having the visual component as a reference, just recognizing what the characters or what the letters are corresponding mm -hmm. to these sounds um, is, is, is really helpful or, ha or has been helpful for me. So I guess that then leads me to ask, um, what is the approach of Link, your language learning platform? Like for some of our listeners that might be interested after this episode and checking it out, what can they expect to find there? Well, you know, it's a, it's a platform that makes everything easier. I would put it that way. I mean, you can read books and look things up in a dictionary. Uh, you can get audio material and listen to it. But we combine all of these things. We have uh, a variety of sort of lessons in our libraries for over 30 languages, always with audio and text. So probably Link is the largest repository of audio and text you know, language learning material anywhere. Uh, we got, you know, thousands of hours of stuff. Um, but it also enables you to bring, you know, uh, newspaper articles in and make that part of your learning experience. And, and Le Link has a bunch of functionality, uh, how you save words and phrases, how you review them, 
uh, statistics on how many words you've learned, how many words you've read, how many hours you've listened, uh, the ability to very easily take the lesson audio and throw it onto a playlist so it's always um, you know, accessible, even offline. Uh, the ability to have something that you can be studying on your computer, on your iPhone, on your iPad, everything's up to date. Uh, it just makes everything easier. And, and more recently, we've added, we have a, a browser extension which enables you to bring literally anything from the internet in. And now, more recently, that includes you know, videos on YouTube where there are subtitles or you know, closed captions. Similarly, Netflix, you can bring all of that material in and study it as a lesson, start to acquire those words. So I guess it just empowers, I think, you know, lo looking at, at all of the stuff that's available to us now, the resources that are available on the internet, the technology that's available, it just brings it all together in one convenient place, tracks what you're doing, which can be encouraging because at times we have the impression we're not getting anywhere in a language. So, and there's a community. So all of these things, there's nothing, there's nothing earth shattering there that, that, you know, some sort of magic pill. It's just the convenience of having, having everything in one place because we're talking time here. I mean, there's two key sort of elements in language learning. One is your motivation and the second is the time and it takes a lot of time. And so anything that can be done to make the learner more efficient is going to increase the enjoyment, but it's also going to increase the efficiency of, of the learning. So time is a big factor and, and Link just makes it more pleasant and, and easier. Therefore, you know, you spend less time or you are able to take advantage of more time. Like it, because of the connection of the listening to the reading, if you're waiting uh, in line somewhere or you're in your car, or you're on a bus, you're always learning. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any myths about language learning that you've encountered in the years that you've been doing Link? Um, and if so, what are they and can you debunk them? Yeah, there's lots of myths. Um, I guess- okay, Give know, me your, your top two. Top it's hard to say top two, but, but, but certainly one of them is, you know, you have to have a special talent, okay? That's one of the ones you get all the time. And, and I'm, sure if, uh, I'm sure if you speak a number of languages, you've often been told by people, gee, I wish I could learn Spanish, but you obviously have a talent for learning Spanish and I don't. I tried at school and I can't learn. So that's very common. But uh, that's simply not true. And, uh, you know, a good example is the number of English speaking people who sort of say, well, you know, uh, I have a tough time learning languages, but then they'll go off to a country and they expect the people there to speak English. So if the people there, whatever country that may be, are expected to speak English, then obviously a majority of people there have, quote, a talent for language learning. So why is it true that people in country X can learn English and English speakers can't learn these other languages? So it's not a matter of a special talent. It's a matter of motivation. The fact is that English speakers, say in North America, because there's, there's, or in, you know, Japanese speakers in Japan or whatever, where you're surrounded by your native language, you don't have any great motivation to learn any other language. It's the motivation that's the problem. Whereas if you live in a country like Sweden or, or even in Europe, where there's so many languages all around you, you have to, there, there's a much greater motivation. So the issue is motivation, not talent. I think that's the first big myth. Another myth, I mean, there's not any number of myths, you know, uh, uh, some people say you can't learn past a certain age. Well, I think I'm living proof that that's not true. Uh, <laughs> sure, you know, sure. 
Uh, another one is that you have to speak, uh, you know, you got to speak from day one. I'm very much against the idea of speaking from day one because you have nothing to say from day one. You have no words. You don't understand what people are saying. So you have to get a, a, a toehold on the language somehow. Uh, and that means working uh, initially with, you know, short bits of text and listening and reading and, and allowing your brain to get some experience with the language. And, and I would add to that the idea that you have to learn the basics first. You can't learn the basics until you have had the language kind of, you know, bomb, until you have bombarded your brain with the language through the words, the listening, the reading, you have some sense. And now you're curious and you've experienced certain things. And then you read a grammar explanation and it starts to make sense. So I think those are some of the myths. That, that I would, it's not necessarily the top two, but those would, would be some that I would put forward as being damaging to the language learner. Sure. Um, now, but that said, w would you say that someone with like a strong linguistic background, and, and by that I mean linguistic in the literal sense, like uh, an understanding of, yeah. yeah, an understanding of linguistics, um, how helpful do you think that is in learning foreign languages? Because very regrettably, I'm very monolingual. Uh -huh. um, I was born in the States, um, had terrible foreign language education during primary schooling. Mm -hmm. And um, I s learned a bit of Hindi, actually. Oh, wow. Um, and I'm not going to speak any of it now, just because right. it's, been, it's, been, it's been a while, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in my personal life, I'm, I'm involved with um, a lot of Hindi-speaking people and in, in Indian community in general. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I kind of picked up the language um, uh, through independent study um, and Im immersion. So it's kind of doing the, the two things that you were talking about, right. uh, using books and listening to actual conversations. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was taking that, endeavor seriously that was before i had an understanding of linguistics you know that the understanding that i have now i mean i've been hosting a linguistics podcast for mm -hmm. three years and, and i've been studying linguistics sort of obsessively and autodidactically mm -hmm. um for for close to eight years so my main foreign language endeavor took place before that so that said right. If I were to go back and do it now, having an, a technical understanding of the mechanics of language, uh, I feel like I would be able to, you know, sort of identify the structural elements and it would be much easier for me with that knowledge. So I don't know, what, what, what is your take on, on that? Um, yeah, first of all, one interesting point. If you sit down with a group of uh, native English speakers in North America, and you ask them if they know the word polyglot, I bet you most of them don't. I bet you're right, for yeah. sure. And <laughs> I've done that all the time. Uh, the word that we use in English is linguist. Someone who speaks many languages, we call them a linguist. And in the Oxford Dictionary, the second meaning is someone who studies or is a, a specialist in linguistics. Most people don't know what linguistics is, haven't even heard the term. Also so that's just, yeah. yeah, so there's a bit of a background on that. And, and linguistics covers so many things, you know, there's applied linguistics, there's the issue of, you know, language acquisition, there's 
you know, social linguistics, which gets involved in politics and all kinds of stuff. Yes, of course. Yeah. So, so it's a broad, a broad field. I mean, any field of study that people find interesting, like I find language learning interesting, is constructive. You know, doesn't matter whether you're a bird watcher or whatever it is. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, however, uh, and, uh, I, but I have not found that, that an understanding of linguistics is that relevant to language learning, in my case. But people bring different backgrounds. So, because I find that the structures of the different languages that I learn are so different. You know, it's hard to have a theory of, you know, language grammar, which, which works for Turkish, which I'm now learning, and Arabic and Chinese and Japanese and Slavic languages, because they all do things quite differently. And to try to come up with some kind of a theoretical sort of overall explanation theory, I don't think is that helpful. Uh, I, I think our brains are very good at identifying patterns. So that's how the brains work. Like we have to be able to anticipate what's gonna happen in life. That's how we sort of manage to navigate everything that happens to us, because in many cases we've, We've been there before, we've seen it, we've done it before, we know what to do, we know how to react. And that's what the brain will do with language if you give it enough exposure. So it's possible that for some, re some people who have a, a, you know, an understanding of linguistics theory, that that might help them in some way, put labels on things that, that they're coming across in a new language. But I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it, it adds that much. You still have to, like, if you look at my statistics on link uh, in Turkish, you know, I, I was, I, I've been at Turkish for three months and I, I'm, I'm on this experiment now where I go three months Turkish, three months Arabic, three months Farsi or Persian. The three languages are from three completely different language families. So they're completely different in how they're structured. And uh, are you doing this simultaneously or three months and then three, three months? And then three months, three months, three months. So it's, okay. a, nine, it's a nine month cycle. And I, I suspect it'll take me at least three years to be comfortable in all three languages. Some are easier than others for different reasons. But... Um, so, uh, you know, I have listened to, you know, I think I looked at, you know, in the three months, like more than an hour a day, every day, like on average, uh, like a hundred hours. And um, some of the stories that we have, the beginner story, well, they're about three, four or five minutes long with a lot of repetition of the same structure, the same, the same um, vocabulary with different tense maybe or different person. I listen to those stories 30, 40, 50 times. So I have bombarded my brain with the language. So my brain is starting to get a natural sense of how the language works. And it's starting to collect, my brain is starting to collect some phrases that I can trot out. And, and to me, that's what's going to do it. Not some theoretical explanation, Turkish is an agglutinative language and you know, similar to Mongolian. Or that doesn't, you know, it's interesting, but it doesn't help me learn the language, at least me. Uh, the most useful, like if you consider, uh, you know, language acquisition theory as a form of linguistics, then I think a lot of the work that Stephen Krashen has done is very valuable because he explains to people that you're going to learn through meaningful input. And so if people can simply relax and let the language come at them and not try to specifically remember any, you know, grammar rules or don't try to ace any conjugation tables because it's actually a very low efficiency activity and and you're far better off to just let the language come at you and at some point you start using it and then you get reaction back from the person you're talking to and there's this gradual process of accumulation and when you are curious about something you look it up 
which again has been made so much easier today because I can look up any verb conjugation, you know, Russian noun declension, anything I want, your Turkish grammar, I just look it up. I Google and I get a, you know, however many thousands of pages providing all the information I need. But if I look it up when I'm curious, I'm more likely to remember. And it applies to something that I've already experienced. So theory, I, I, I almost think in a way, grammar is a form of theory, theoretical explanation. You know, it can't come first. It can be an explanation after the fact of something you've already experienced. Now, um, one obvious benefit of polyglottism, I believe that, that, that is a word. Yes, polyglottism. I think so. It's a clumsy word. But yeah. Well, if it's, if it's not, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a noun in this conversation. Yes. So yep. uh, one of the benefits of polyglottism, obviously, is that you can communicate with many different people who speak many different languages. Right. Um, but I, I wonder, um, do you find a benefit of your polyglottism in sort of day-to-day -day com communications within a single language? Like right now in speaking English, the way that we communicate and the way you think about, you know, basic linguistic communication, has your study of many languages impacted this fundamentally? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, the more ways of expressing thoughts, you know, the patterns, like any thought can be expressed in any language, I'm convinced, you know, there are, in every language, there are a few sort of choice terms that are particularly, you know, elegant or effective in expressing or explaining something. But by and large, you can explain anything in any language. Uh, and so as you become exposed to different forms of saying things, I think that, that you become more you, I think you become a little better at, at expressing things with language. You become a better linguist, including in your own language. I think so. I think so. Um, and, and so you acquire some of the characteristics of, of that language. So the French are more careful and logical in how they explain things. The Japanese are kind of meandering and, and full of, uh, you know, unstated, understated things. And so you, you pick up on some of these things and they, I think, become part of how you express yourself. Uh, yeah, it's uh, interesting how some of those cultural values are actually embedded into the way people speak. I mean, of course, it's yeah. kind of common sense, right? Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I guess- but You pick up on them. You, they, they become part of you sort of uh, very subtly. They, you start to you sort of absorb some of these things. You become a more complete, uh, I shouldn't say that. I mean, you can have, I know many unilingual people who are wonderful people. So I don't want to suggest that, that you, because you speak many languages, therefore you are in any way better. I've known a lot of really good people who only speak one language. The big thing with, with polyglottism, and I'm really sort of going at it now as I'm doing three languages at the same time is, is uh, yeah, it, it perhaps expands your whatever way you use or in, you know, refines the way you use language, even in your own language, but you discover new countries like even i'm going to uh, my wife and i are going to croatia and spain it's our 50th anniversary and so i spending a couple of weeks working on uh, serbo croat in our uh, we have these mini stories at link which are very good for getting started in a language and all of a sudden I have this sense you know here's this area of the world serbia croatia bosnia that i've never even thought much about and now i i can access their newspapers i, I can I'll be able to speak to them to some extent, even though I won't achieve very much in the language. Similarly with Turkish, you know, and then I was watching, you know, Turkish series on Netflix. And of course I can import those into Link and study them. So all of a sudden you're in Greek, I did in Romanian. And, and so through the languages, people who were 
unknowns to you. Arabic, you get closer to them. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's more than just, I can, ch there's a lot of Iranians here in Vancouver. So yeah, I can chat up sales clerks in stores, which is fun, but it's not as meaningful as, as getting closer to those cultures. Um, and, you know, as you say that, it, it makes me realize that even like a single language, like English is, is, is a fantastic example, has traces of polyglottism within it. I mean, anyone who's listened to my podcast, Words for Granted, or anyone who knows anything about historical linguistics knows that languages are shaped by contact with other languages. And yep. um, in, I mean, in English, the, the, the effects of its contact with Old Norse and French were profound, like literally not, not, not just giving the language loan words, but changing the entire structure totally. of, of English. So um, even, even if you only speak one language, you may not realize this and there's maybe no practical benefit, immediate practical benefit of knowing this, but every, or maybe not every, but most major languages of the world are affected by polyglots, essentially, and shaped by polyglots at some point in history. Well, exactly. And I mean, if you look at history, you know, I don't know if uh, hunter-gatherer societies 10, 15,000 years ago uh, were like uh, the communities in the Amazon or uh, in Papua New Guinea, but there's so many languages there. People had to be able to communicate in several languages. I, I had a taxi driver here in Vancouver who was originally from Ethiopia, and he was talking about the different languages there. Uh, you know, the many multilingual empires, whether it be, you know, the, uh, the Ottoman Empire or the Roman Empire, you know, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I mean, so yeah, many languages, so many people, so many different languages. And even if they weren't in the same empire, like, uh, again, uh, Turkish, Persian and Arabic, they share about 15 percent vocabulary. And Turkish has a lot of European language loan words. I mean, Japanese was so heavily influenced by Chinese. It has a lot of uh, other loan words. I mean, there's hardly a language. They're, they're, it's the same as people. People are all mixed. No matter which country you go to, there's been a blending of different layers of people who lived and emigrated and conquered and whatnot. And, and the same, this is all reflected in language as well. There's no, there's no pure language, there's no pure people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. And that's part of what makes it fun. I mean, part of my motivation for learning Persian, uh, Arabic, and Turkish is that there's been so much historical, you know, geographically, they're close together. And historically, going way back in time, Turks and Iranian peoples have mingled the Arabs, of course, with the spread of Islam. So there's a lot of connection there. Everything is connection uh, connected. And, and of course, as you say, English... Uh, is perhaps the best example of a hybrid language. Like it's hard to define English as a Germanic language or a Romance language. It has more Romance language vocabulary in it than Germanic vocabulary. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, I forget what the exact statistics are, but I think mm -hmm. if you, I mean, English is fundamentally a Germanic language, of course, that's where right. it originally came from. It broke off from Proto-Germanic. Um, but I think if you look at the top 200 most commonly used English words, like 
95% of them are in fact Germanic. Oh yeah. Though when you, though when you look at the language at large, we have a larger Latinate vocabulary. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is kind of the most fascinating thing to me, which is obviously reflected in my show, the, the interplay between history and language and right. sort of my, my fascination with linguistics is of course, historical linguistics. And I, I got into this um, because I love history and right. I also love language and literature and sort of using language as an entry point into studying history and who we are and how, 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 how we came to be what we are now. I mean, yeah. language tells a large part of that story. Absolutely. I mean, that's a large part of my motivation. There is no way, you know, if I'm now up to 21 languages, if I do Croatian, Serbian, whatever, 22, you, you can't have lang, you can't be speaking those languages all the time. You can't even maintain them all the time. I have languages that I have learned and used when I visited the country. And if you ask me now to speak in Greek or Romanian or Czech or Polish, I, I couldn't. You can't maintain mm -hmm. them. But I can read a history book. Uh, I can access the newspaper, perhaps with a little bit of help. I typically bring articles into Link to read them there so I can save the words. Uh, so it definitely has to do with discovering who we are as human beings, different manifestations of, of human beings, N not in terms of, you know, DNA, like we're, uh, you know, culture and DNA are two separate things, but in terms of cultures that humans have created, you access them through language. Mm -hmm. One thing I would point out too, with, with regard to the, uh, the fact that the high frequency words in, uh, in English are predominantly Germanic, uh, from a, the perspective of a language learner, uh, the unfortunate fact is that the most frequent, say, thousand words are quite easy to learn because they come up all the time. But the frequency drops off very, very quickly. And so that the, you can learn, you know, buy, for, give, take, me, you, whatever. You can learn those very soon because they show up all the time. But then there's a lot of words that are relatively low frequency, but which you absolutely need to understand any context. And in English, those lower, once you get into the lower frequency words, they're predominantly uh, Latinate words, as you call them. And that's why really a speaker of English has a big advantage in learning, you know, Spanish, French, and these other words, because they're going to, you're going to know a good portion of the vocabulary in those, uh, in those languages. Right. Um, okay. I, th this has been a wonderful conversation. Let's just wrap Super. up with maybe okay. two, yep. two, two more questions. Um, yeah. What are some of the challenges that you still face um, in, in a general sense and maybe in a language specific sense? So like an example of, oh, I find this thing about this language challenging. And in general, I, I find, I don't know, uh, remembering vocabulary or uh, tense, you know, whatever that may be. Well, in terms of difficulty, all of the above. Uh, with Turkish right now, I mean, the way they structure their verbs and, and or their suffixes is completely new to me. And uh, it's a, just a matter of getting used to. So I don't fuss about the fact that I, I posted a video yesterday where I was speaking Turkish after three months and I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I understand the theory. I understand how they're supposed to work. But to actually produce them is difficult. And you just have to rely on the fact that with enough exposure and attempts to use it and more reading and more listening, you eventually get used to it. 
it's not a matter of understanding the theory, you just have to get used to it. So the difficulty there is to get used to, you know, structures, patterns, models of expression in another language that are very different from what you're used to. And with that is learning the vocabulary. Okay, so that's one difficulty. Uh, and the more similar the language is, the easier it is. The right. second difficulty can be the writing system. So uh, for me, uh, Turkish, even though it's probably more difficult, it is more difficult than Persian. Persian is actually quite easy. It's very similar to European language, languages. It's an Indo-European language. But it's written in the Arabic script. So script is also a difficulty. I would say uh, it's always easier. You know, you take the cumulative experience that we have reading in the Latin alphabet. There is no way I can read Russian, I can read Chinese, whatever, but it'll never be quite as comfortable as reading in the Latin alphabet. The reverse would be true for obviously Russians or Japanese or Chinese people. Naturally, yeah. So script, script is a big one. And the other one is just getting used to not understanding the theory of how the language works, but actually getting used to it so you can naturally produce these different structures. Right. How do you feel about accent from language to language? Well, I think that uh, the more languages you speak, the better you get at producing uh, the accent because uh, your brain uh, accepts, you know, a broader range of sounds. If you only have one language, that's going to influence, you know, language two. But then with language two, you acquire some new sounds. So in time, you get better at it. To me, I always admire those people who speak English and who use the language well, who have a broad vocabulary, who are very accurate in their use, you know, in their choice of words and so forth. I'm much less fussed about whether their accent sounds native or doesn't sound native. I don't think that's so important. Sure, sure. I, just uh, a, a, few, a few months ago, I spent a week with a Japanese man who li lives in Japan, but yeah. um, he, he's, he's a journalist, so he's traveled a lot and naturally speaks English. Um, and yes, of course, he spoke with a Japanese accent, but wow, his English was just so measured and yeah. his word choice was impeccable. And he said, in many ways, he spoke English um, better than a native speaker. And I don't, I don't mean more like technically correct. I mean, like he spoke less fluff, like, like the actual intention yeah. of everything he said was uh, exactly. very, <laughs> very meaningful, very impressive. I, I was totally- Always impressive, away. always but, impressive. But you know what? Again, as an English speaker, particularly a North American, or at least a, an American English speaker, um, we're, we're in the minority of being this like monolingual culture and not, and not really having the need to learn other languages because everyone, <laughs> not everyone, but you know, the, the world basically wants to learn English because it's a very useful right. uh, language to learn. Be of course, because of colonial colonialism, but the fact of the matter is, you know, English is the lingua franca of today. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one more question. Okay. Um, what, and, and this is kind of a silly one that might not have an objective answer, but in your experience, what is the most difficult language that you've encountered thus far? Uh, they're difficult for different reasons. Slavic languages have very complicated grammar. Uh, Arabic does some things that are completely new to me. Um, you know, obviously learning Chinese, you got to learn the characters. Otherwise, Chinese is quite easy. I, I don't like to say. I think, you, you know, if, you, if you're motivated to learn a language, you just go for it. 
I know. I, that, yeah. That's kind of the answer that I expected. I just, on behalf of my listeners, I know people, right. people like to ask those kinds of questions. What's your favorite this or what's the hardest this? The hardest um, language to learn is a language you're not very motivated to learn. Uh-huh. That's a great answer. Um, okay. Well, Steve, uh, thank you so much for coming on thank to you. Voice for Granted. Okay. And yeah, I hope we can talk again soon. Look forward to that. Thank you, Ray. All right, guys. Again, if you want to learn more about Steve Kaufman and Link, you can find out more information in the show notes and on my website, wordsforgranted.com. You can follow me on Twitter at at wordsforgranted. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, shoot me an email at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Have a great day. I'll see you next time here at Words for Granted.